After centuries of silence and waiting for Isaiah's hopeful prophecies to be fulfilled, from David's family, from Bethlehem, would come a perfect ruler, the true king who would bring peace not just to Israel, but to the whole world. This king has come, but we are still waiting for him to come again and fully establish his kingdom on earth. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name <clears throat> was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. To make his nation, God chose a 100-year-old man and his barren wife and gave them a son. To make his entrance into humanity, he chose a tiny no-name town and a virgin's womb. In the book of Luke, Mary responds to this in a song. She sings of a God of surprising reversals, using weak people to accomplish mighty things filling the hungry and sending the rich away empty-handed, calling a peasant girl blessed among women. The all-powerful King of Kings has come to us in the form of a helpless baby. Emmanuel, God with us, has drawn near. The Christian story that we were recounting today in those songs and in the scripture that was being read back and forth tells us that God's story, God's plan, the Christian story is universal. It is a big universal narrative. And if you traced, if it was, I know it's not easy as you're kind of hearing scripture read in a song to necessarily trace it all the way through, but if you reflect it on the readings that are there and the songs that are sung in response, what you're getting there is, is what somebody might call a meta-narrative. What's a meta-narrative? Um, it means a story that tells the big story. And last week, if you were here, we actually talked about how some stories really compel us. And one of the key aspects of a compelling story is it has to be awe-inspiring. It has to capture your imagination. Because all of us, deep down in, want to be part of something bigger than us. We want to be awestruck and wonder-filled. Wonder and that's why a narrative, a story like the one that begins a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, captures people's imagination. I remember being a four, five, six-year-old wondering about the other planets and the things that were happening far away and whether there was a galactic battle I was supposed to be a part of. Little boys grew up to be young men and adults who probably still hold on to a little bit of that same understanding. What's the big story? 
Am I a part of it? Well, that's what we get in Lessons and Carols. So in case you weren't following perfectly all the way through, let me walk you through what we just heard as quickly as I can. The Lessons and Carol narrative is this. It's the story of what God has done. He creates a good universe, but humanity falls, breaks away, says, God, I want to do my own thing. And as a result, they are kicked out of the garden. They're expelled and driven from God, from life, because of their own choice. And for centuries, God is silent, it seems. But in the midst of the silence, God speaks in Genesis 12 to Abraham, and he says, you, you, Abraham, I want you to be my person through whom I'm going to bless the world. I will make you a great nation. It was decades before he even had a child, and he died before he knew how big his nation would become. Eventually, though, this, this great family grows up, but then they end up in Egypt in slavery, and many of you know that story, the Exodus story, where God finally redeems his people after hundreds of years of slavery, setting them free and bringing them into the promised land. And then again, decades, centuries later, he raises up a king named David, And it looks like Israel is finally established. The promise given to Abraham, the promise that was undoing the work of the fall, is happening. God is working through David and through this nation. And through them, the whole world is going to see and experience the goodness of God. But the people of Israel fall away generation after generation. And God once again gives them up to their own devices. He says, fine, you want to go from me? Go. Eventually, they're conquered and in exile And in those periods of exile is when we get the prophets like Micah or Isaiah that we had read. And they speak into a time of darkness, of brokenness. And they give hope that one day, Emmanuel, God would come and right all wrongs. The hope of Advent and the hope of Christmas is that God did come. But I think often many of us feel like we're still in that season where the prophets were in darkness wanting God to come. If you look at any of the news stories, you can see images of what the world is like. The world is filled with brokenness of places like Syria or Burma or Mosul, of earthquakes rattling and hurricanes destroying and floods wrecking places like Houston of a country that's still filled with a lot of racism. All you have to do is trace the news for a a week or so, read a newspaper front to back, and you will see this is a fallen and broken world. It just is. And not just on a macro level, like the stories of what's going on in the world, we know it ourselves. We know that we are fallen and broken ourselves. There's probably not a person in this room that's over age 14 who hasn't dealt with suicide in their family or friends, cancer, divorce, addiction, depression, or quite frankly, just our own sin. It's not some great insight to say this world has fallen and broken, but it is a truth that is spoken into the story of what God is doing. And so with lessons and carols being done in Advent, Advent is a season of longing. And the longing is 
O come, O come, Emmanuel, we sing it every week. O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel. Set us free. And it's basically God come and restore the stuff that's all messed up. But the Advent is not just a season of longing. It's also a season, of course, of hope. God is moving in history. He continues to move in history, and history is moving towards God's end. C.S. Lewis talking about the miracle of the incarnation in Christmas said this, the Christian story is precisely the story of one grand miracle. The Christian assertion being that what is beyond all space and time, which is uncreated, eternal, came into nature, into human nature, descended into his own universe, and rose again, bringing nature up with him. It is precisely one great miracle. You know, in order for a story to capture us, it needs to not just be awe-inspiring, some grand meta-narrative that tells us what it's all about. It also needs to be something we can identify with, something we connect to. You actually want to connect with a character or feel like you can fit into the story. It has to be personal because a story for it to matter has to matter to me. Christmas, the incarnation, tells us not just that God has a plan, but that you matter to him as well. Because the story is not just universal, it's also, secondly, local. It's a very local story, right? We talk about Christmas, and you can get caught up in the, you know, all the things that go on around Christmas, and if you start singing some of the carols, it's, you know, angels in faraway distant places. But those angels in those faraway distant places actually exist. They took place in time. If you read Luke 1 and 2 over the next week, just as something to do to kind of fit into a preparing for Christmas sort of thing, what you'll find out is that the birth of Jesus happens during the reign of Caesar Augustus. That was an actual Roman emperor. He actually lived. In Luke 1, it says it was during the reign of Herod when he was king of Judea, who was actually known as Herod the Great. He was king of Judea during a certain period of time. It goes so far in our little passage to say in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, we talked last week about Elizabeth, the uh, sister, the uh, cousin of Mary who was pregnant. So she's six months pregnant and then something happens. Basically, God doesn't just operate over eternity. He operates in time and space. He enters locations. He moves in places. He gets very, very local. In verse 26, we read, an angel from God, an angel from God was sent to the city in Galilee named Nazareth. It actually doesn't get more local than that. Now, the funny thing about this is Luke is writing Galilee, and he says, in Nazareth, Nazareth in Galilee, because people have no idea what Nazareth is. His readers have never heard of Nazareth unless he tells them it's in Galilee, which they've roughly heard of. It's basically like, oh, you know, in Nazareth, an angel of the Lord came to a certain home. What's Nazareth? Where is that? Never heard of it. If I said an angel of the Lord appeared in Brazenell Township, 
How many of you would know what I'm talking about? Don't raise your hand because two of you besides me know what that is. Brazenell Township is a little collection of houses, about 20 of them, along the Redstone Creek. Does that help? No? You haven't been there? Nazareth was a little collection of houses in the middle of nowhere. No one had ever heard of it except the people who lived there. Why did God go there? God's big plan for the entire universe is fixated on like Waynesboro, Virginia. No offense to Waynesboro, but like, you know, it's a little bigger than Brazenell or Nazareth, but you get the idea. And you wonder, why, what is God up to? Why is he doing this sort of thing? I think he's trying to tell us something. He is big, he is universal, but he's also local. Think about the vastness of the universe. Our solar system is more than hundreds of billions of miles wide. More than hundreds of billions of miles wide. We are in the Milky Way galaxy. We rotate around a sun, and our solar system is hundreds of billions of miles wide. We are one of the little dits in the midst of that conglomeration of the Milky Way galaxy. The Milky Way galaxy has 200 billion stars, roughly, each of which is its own solar system, most likely. And the Milky Way is one of hundreds of billions of galaxies in the known universe. Where do we fit in? What does God have to do with this place? In his little essay called The Visited Planet, New Testament scholar J.B. Phillips writes about a senior angel giving a junior angel a tour of the universe. And he's showing him all the vast stars, all the vast galaxies, all the vast universes. They're looking all over the place. And then he brings him down further, the junior angel, and he says, I want you to look at that planet over there. What's special about that one, says the junior angel. That's the visited planet, says the senior angel. To which the junior angel says, do you mean that our great and glorious Lord went down in person to this fifth-rate little ball? Why should he do a thing like that? God's universal plan of redemption is very local. What does this mean? Well, for one thing, it elevates this world, this planet, and the people on it. It means this life matters. It elevates our towns, our homes, our neighborhoods, places like Nazareth or wherever you live. And it elevates our actual bodies that take up space. You and your physicality and your sleep and your eating and everything about you matters. Because when God decided to do something about this whole problem with the creation, he did it very locally. One 1980s chorus writer reflecting on Psalm 8 wrote this, with a word you spoke the heavens into place scatter the stars and gave the earth its frame. What is man that you should touch him with your grace? And who am I, O God, that you should know my name? David said the same thing. When I consider the stars, the works of your hands, I'm blown away. 
What is man that you are mindful of him? Why do you care? Why? Because God is not just universal. His plan is not just universal, it's local, because thirdly, it's personal. God's plan is very personal. In verse 27, we read about a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph, and the virgin's name was Mary. So what do we know about Mary? You guys know a lot about Mary from the different stories that you've heard, right? We know a couple things. Mary is from Nazareth, which is a peasant village, a rural peasant village, okay? Small collection of very small houses. She's a rural peasant girl. She's a virgin, which means she's most likely a teenager. You could get married as young as 12, 13 in that culture. So let's give her the benefit of the doubt and say she's 16, 15. She's ready for life, right? She's a teenage girl, a teenage peasant girl. As a female and a young female in a patriarchal and elder-minded culture, she was about as low as yet on the whole social stratification. She had no rights of her own aside from her father or a husband. She was a nobody. And yet, the angel speaks to her directly. He says in verse 28, greetings, favored one. If you translate that directly from the Greek, it's grace to the one who has been graced. Grace to the one who has been graced. Favored one. Now, a lot has been done trying to theologically understand the whole favored one of Mary, but the idea behind what's going on here is not that Mary had something in and of herself that made her favored. Being the favored one was not because of something she had done or somebody that she was. It was not who she was or what she had done. It was rather because God was going to do something through her. That's how grace works. God doesn't say, oh, you're the sort of person I can use. God chooses you and you become the sort of person he's going to use. There's an award that's given to one of the local elementary schools that my kids went to, Louise Archer. It's for a sixth grader who is the happiest, friendliest kid in the entire school that year. Um, it's called the Sunshine Award, um, very, very fittingly so. And when one of my kids was in sixth grade, they announced the boy who had won. Um, and when Ryan won the Sunshine Award, all of us sitting around were like, yeah, I would have given it to him too. He's really sunshiny. He is such a nice kid. It was kind of an obvious like, oh yeah, you, Sunshine Award, give it to him. He was a great kid, easy. There's nothing in the passage that says Mary deserves to win. It simply identifies her as a poor, peasant, rural, virgin, teenage girl. Basically, take the most unknown nobody and say, yep, that one. You win the Sunshine Award. When we talk about religion versus the gospel, there are certain phrases that we use, and many of us use in our culture, thinking about how things probably work. One of the phrases is, what goes around comes around. What goes around comes around. That's the idea of karma. Most world religions are built on the idea of karma. You will get what you deserve. 
There's another one, another phrase that's used very often. It's called, God helps those who help themselves. That's America. That's an American religious statement. So you have karma, you have America, and then you have the gospel. It's not what goes around comes around, or God helps those who help themselves. It is God raises dead people. God saves the sinner. God redeems the undeserving. When it comes to the gospel, it's not the good who are in and the bad who are out. It's the humble who are in. Those willing to admit their sinfulness, their brokenness, and their need. That's who's in. Not those who can help themselves. Not the ones who measure up. The gospel is a very different sort of thing that needs to enter personally. You know, when you're in school, truth or facts are things you try to learn. And you could actually get interested in a particular subject. And if it's something complex and you like learning, you might have aha moments where you figure something out and you get excited about it. Like, oh my goodness, this is really cool. I just understood this for the first time. The gospel is not a truth that you figure out. The gospel is a truth that figures you out because it is knowledge of what God has done that changes you and changes everything. For those of you who are teenagers and on the Twitter, you will know of a guy named Ryan McKelveen, I think is how you pronounce his name. Ryan McKelveen, anybody know of him, right? Some of you know of him. All of you out there know who he is, no? Yes? You should know him if you have kids in FCPS schools because he tweets when school is going to be out before everyone else puts it out there. So students, high school kids, follow him because if there's a chance of snow, they know that Ryan will be posting it before anyone else does. Before FCPS, before the Facebook page for Fairfax County, it'll be two-hour delay tomorrow. School's closed tomorrow. So he's kind of a, a hero because he gets that word out. He lets you know a snow day is coming. Kids get excited about a snow day. Why? Because it's not like other news. Other news that they might hear if a kid walks through the room, it's like, okay, something's happening around the world, in North Korea, in Russia, in Europe. But it doesn't affect them. At least it doesn't feel like it does. But when Ryan McElveen says, school's canceled tomorrow, oh, that's good news. That is news that changes everything. That's news that means you don't have to study for the test tomorrow. That's news that means you can sleep in. That's news that is good news. The gospel is like the news of a snow day for a kid. It is a message that changes everything for you and in you and all that you're about. But it must do that for you personally. Many people go through life walking through the church stuff. They've been exposed to Christianity, but the penny has never dropped. Others spend their life seeking, is there a God? Do I matter? And eventually, maybe, it hits them. Like a ton of bricks, like a bullet to the heart. 
I remember a teenage boy in Madison County, Virginia, in weeping tears, he was one of the toughest kids out there, in weeping tears, because he thought, does God really love me this much? He'd grown up around the church, but eventually it just hit him. He understood the gospel, and it penetrated to his heart deeply. Christianity must involve an individual encounter and a personal response to God. The amazing thing is that God is narrowing it down further and further and further from the universal to the local to the personal. C.S. Lewis writing again said, here's how the story goes. One people is picked out of the whole earth. That people proved again and again. Some are lost in the desert. Some stay in Babylon. Some becoming indifferent. The whole thing narrows and narrows until at last it comes down to a little point, small as the point of a spear, a Jewish girl at her prayers. That is what the whole of human nature has narrowed down to before the incarnation takes place. The Christian story is universal. It is local and personal. But the Christian story is also trouble. Think about Mary's trouble. The angel comes to her and says, you, a virgin, are going to have a child. You're going to be pregnant. The sort of people who go around and tell their parents and their boyfriend, an angel told me, by the power of God, I will have a baby. No one's going to believe you. And in that ancient culture, it was the potential of a death sentence. This is not good news to Mary. Mary, you're going to be the mother of the Savior of the world. Are you sure I can't just have a carpenter? Like a really good carpenter. How about that, God? Savior of the world is going to be the most difficult thing. You don't want to be the parent of that guy. Simeon, later on, after the baby is born, says in the temple prophesying a, a word directly to Mary, a sword shall pierce your heart. He was looking ahead to her son's ending. He knows what's in store for Mary, even as she doesn't. But Mary is aware enough, as the angel speaks to her, that her life is going to be one of trouble. You don't enter into relationship with God without it changing you and you having to give up your authority and your control. But Mary responds in verse 38 with that most powerful of phrases, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to to your word. Philip Yancey writes, often a work of God comes with two edges, great joy and great pain. Mary embraced both. She was the first person to accept Jesus on his own terms, regardless of personal cost. It will cost you too. You can have your autonomy or you can have Jesus. You cannot have both. Here's the Advent hope. It is a broken and fallen world. I don't need to remind you of that. And maybe you, like me, long for God to come, to restore things, to make things right again. The Advent hope, the Christmas hope, is God did enter. And he continues to enter locally and personally. 
Through the story that we just heard, we hear God again and again speaking personally. Where are you, Adam? Abraham, I want you. David, I will raise you up. Isaiah, say to the people, Mary, Joseph, you. What God intends to do on a universal and eternal scale, he intends to do in and through you and me. God does not just want to be Emmanuel, God with us. He wants to be God in you. The greatest advent in Christian hope is not just that there is a God who has seen this world and has entered it. It's that this God wants you. Let's pray. God, into a fallen and broken world, you descended and became one of us to lift us out. You are working history, but you entered it personally, and you want to do that in us. May we be open this Christmas. Amen.